Well, hello, friends. The following podcast is part two of a class that Father Peter Musset and Dr. Scott Powell did at the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought called Christ in the Stars, which was an exploration of the scriptural and historical and astronomical story of the nativity, what was happening in the scriptures and in the heavens to announce Christ's birth. We are offering it to you guys as a Christmas gift. This, as we said, is part two. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, you might want to go back and do that. But if you did and if you liked it, then without further ado, we present to you part two, Father Peter, Dr. Scott Powell, Christ in the Stars, recorded on December 7th, 2016 in Boulder, Colorado. Merry Christmas, everybody. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. I think we have some, some very small pictures of water over there for all of you have to share. Um, thanks for coming out. We genuinely didn't know, you know, with all the snow, it's a very cold, snowy night. The roads are not good. So it means a tremendous amount to us that you actually all came out. It's finals are starting for our students. There's a basketball game up the road. We had everything working against us. So I am totally thrilled and totally stunned that you guys are all here tonight. So thank you so much. I know we have some new faces that I didn't see last week. So thank you for braving it and coming to the second one. So don't worry if you missed last week. We are trying to record this. We're trying to do a video. We'll see how that turns out and how it looks before we post it publicly. But hopefully that'll work out too. So um, at the very least, we're doing audio. Yes, killer audio. Before we jump in, Father Peter, will you open us in a quick prayer? Yes, uh, today is Jess Gruber's birthday. Yeah. Jess Gruber does um, uh, a lot. If you've ever been a participant in RCIA, you know that um, Matt may look like he runs RCIA, but Jess actually runs RCIA. So um, she works with Matt uh, to, to bring uh, many new holy souls into the church. Um, so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we praise you for... Um, the gift of the Immaculate Conception for promising us from the very beginning um, that we would have a woman whose seed would be at enmity with the ancient serpent, um, who would ultimately defeat him, though he would inflict a vicious wound upon the head. Um, and so in uh, Jesus, in receiving that wound, we thank you for the gift of salvation which you have wrought by laying down your life so willingly. We ask you in this evening that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand uh, to what you have been doing from the beginning of time and how all of reality uh, is all of creation, all of our relationships with you, with each other, with ourselves, are meant to be in harmony. So we ask you that this evening as we study, some, we would be harmonized again with your divine plan. And so we offer you all glories. We pray glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Father. I think at this point there are some folding chairs over there. Um, you, there's no chairs left here in the center. There's one chair. Or is that safe? Is that, yeah, that, okay, there's one chair right there, too, at a table. So other than that, thank you. So a couple of people have uh, come by my office. I think most of you were here last week, which is good. Uh, again, if you if you weren't, don't worry about it. But if, a number if of people. If you were not here, would you raise your hand for me? Okay, good. Thank you. A lot of people have come uh, around and, and said, you know, you've set yourself up for a pretty intense 
thing you're trying to do tonight, and proposals we're trying to make, which is true, and we're trying to propose some things that we think are a little bit unique and a different way of looking at the Christmas story. Um, and I'm relieved tonight because in, uh, in baseball terms, I have what's called the leadoff position. And if anybody knows baseball, the only job of the leadoff guy is just to get on base. And he, he leaves it to the rest of the people to actually score the home runs. So all I have to do, either through a bunt or a, a, you know, a, a, a base hit, is just get on base, and I'm going to turn it over to Father Peter to, to hit, the, hit it out of the park. So that being said, um, what we're doing tonight, and what we've been doing for these last couple of weeks, is trying to remind ourselves that the God who is overall, the God who is everything, the God who made everything, keeps everything in existence, who is outside and above and beyond time and space, became part of time and space. And actually chose to become a human being in a particular time, in a particular part of the world, at a particular moment. What we're trying to reflect on is how both in the scriptures that were handed on to us by our Jewish ancestors, and in nature itself, how everything around us is actually speaking to this moment that God chose to step into human history, into time and space, and how both time and space speak to who he is and what he has done and the fact that that has happened, which is such a profound thing to do in Advent. I think it's a great Advent. It's been a great exercise for us to kind of wrestle through these things as our own preparation for Christmas, which is one of those things. I mean, something about Christmas, it's just, it's so normal to us. It's so... There's so many traditions that surround it. There's so much beauty that surrounds it. It's one of those things that becomes so old and so tried for us. We forget to find anything new about it. We forget to be reminded that this is an utterly revolutionary moment in the history of humanity. That God actually decides to become a human being. And not just a human being, but actually a baby born in pretty humble and pretty poor circumstances. And how even creation can't keep silent about that event. That's a pretty profound thing. And it's a great reflection as we begin to welcome him, as we prepare ourselves to welcome that event at Christmas. So last week, we talked about a number of things. We talked, at least on the scriptural level, we talked about a, uh, a lot from the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is the one who gives us a lot of what we know about the Christmas story where we get the story of the Annunciation of John the Baptist, when Zechariah is told he's going to have a son, he's going to be John the Baptist, he's going to do all these things. We meet Mary, we're told about her Annunciation from the angel Gabriel, we're told about the flight uh, when they go to Bethlehem and there's no room for them at the inn. All of these stories come from Luke. And last week we talked about two Annunciations that actually take place. There's two Annunciations in the Gospel of Luke. One of them is slightly more important than the other. One is the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. One is the announcement of Jesus. And ironically, the less important one comes first. Because for some reason, Luke wants you thinking about that one even before we get to Jesus. We talked about, on the Gospel of Luke, there's actually three sets of couples, heralds, who come before the king preparing his way. A set of kings, priests, and prophets who are preparing you and I and the readings and all these things for what Christ is going to do. We also talked about how in the Bible we often encounter these ironic reversals. Things are rarely what you expect them to be. I mentioned those two annunciations in the Gospel of Luke. Two times the angel Gabriel appears to two different people and makes two different announcements. One of them is to a big important priest in the capital city in Jerusalem at the temple at this profound hour with everybody gathered outside. And the other announcement is made to this 12, 13-year-old peasant girl in backwoods Nazareth. 
I mean, which one do you expect to be the big announcement? Well, it's not the one that you were expecting. It's the one given to the 12, 13-year-old peasant girl in backwoods Nazareth. Zechariah, the priest in the big important temple in the big important capital city, gets the secondary announcement. Things are never quite what they seem to be and never what we expect. So I want you to keep in mind that idea of ironic reversals, things never quite being what we expect as we go forward today. And so I want to start by turning your attention to the Gospel of Matthew. We spent a lot of time in Luke last time, and now we want to turn to Matthew. And if you have your Bible, and if you don't, there's always some floating around. I know there's some on the back, the back shelves back there. It's kind of hard to get to. But if you have a Bible, open it to, Luke, uh, to Matthew chapter 2. I just want to read this to situate us back in time. It's a story we've probably heard a million times, but I want to put your minds back there. It's chapter 2, verse 1. And here's what Matthew says. Now when Jesus was born... I know we're still preparing in Advent, so we're jumping ahead in the story a little bit. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, who was the king, behold, wise men, or some translations say magi, in Greek it's magi, wise men, magi, came from the east. They came to Jerusalem, and they said, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, because he's the king. What do you mean there's another king? He was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled the chief priests and the scribes and the people, and he inquired of them where this Christ, and Christ just means king, where this other king was supposed to be born. And the scribes and the chief priests, they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for shall, from you shall come a ruler, he will govern my people Israel. And so Herod summoned the wise men, the magi, secretly, and he ascertained from them what time this star appeared. And he sent him to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search for this child, and when you have found him, come back to me, so that I can go worship him too. And when they had heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. And they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly, they had great joy, they went into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they went back to their country another way. For this one before, right? The three kings, the wise men. You'll notice nowhere in here does it talk about them being kings. They're wise men. They're magi, whatever that means. But they come to worship a different king. And I start there because that story, and again, it's one I'm just assuming most of us probably heard before in some way or another, it poses a lot of questions, two in particular. First of all, who on earth were these wise men? Who are they? Where the heck do they come from? Why are they coming to see Jesus? And number two, what is this star that they're following? What led them there? How did they come from wherever they came from to Jerusalem and then eventually Bethlehem? What led them there, and who are they that made them be looking for something? So to answer this, I want to quickly revisit something we talked about last week. And I've mentioned it a couple times. Luke begins with an annunciation. The annunciation of an angel called Gabriel to a priest named Zechariah that something big was about to happen. Zechariah, if you remember from last time, he was a priest. His job was serving in the temple. And this particular day, he was serving in the temple at the hour of sacrifice. And his job that day was to offer incense, which to those of us who are Catholics might not sound like a big deal. We use incense a lot. But for the priest in the temple in Jerusalem to offer incense was the most important thing you could ever do. And you only got to do it once in your lifetime. 
because it meant you got to be closer to the presence of God than any other human being got to be. You get to do that. And for all of Judeo-Christian tradition, incense, if you remember what incense looks like, it's thick and it rises up. It's always been made to represent the prayers of us, of the people of God before God, going up to him. So Zechariah's job that day at the hour of sacrifice in the temple is to offer the prayers of the people of God. He's offering a corporate prayer of Israel. And what is Israel praying for at that moment? Well, at that moment in Jesus' time, Israel was in its darkest period. Things were not good. They were being oppressed. Their land had been taken away. Their true king was gone. It was a very dark time. And what was on the lips of every good Jew of the time was, How long, O Lord? How long are we stuck in this period of darkness and sin and oppression and persecution and landlessness and everything else? How long? So Zechariah is praying, how long? Hear us, O Lord. And at that moment, an angel appears. And he's like, guess what, Zechariah? Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard, and now is the time. And you're going to have a son who's going to be part of this mission to tell the world that now is the time. The darkness is lifting. The sin is going to be forgiven. Righteousness will come in. The whole world's about to change. And Zechariah, if you remember, is a little skeptical. He's like, wait a second. How am I supposed to know this is true? And the answer to how am I supposed to know this is true, the angel says, because I'm Gabriel. Which doesn't seem like a good answer unless you remember the last time Gabriel appeared in the Bible was back in the book of Daniel. A prophet called Daniel. Quick recap on Daniel. I know those of you who are here, this is a bit of refresher, but we need it to jump in where we're going this week. Daniel was a prophet who wrote in the time of what was called the Babylonian exile. This really, really dark moment. It's actually the moment that started the darkness that still proceeded in the time of Jesus. When the nation of Israel, who is this great people, meant to be a light to the nations, the chosen one of God, they had lost their way, they had broken God's commandments, they had turned from him, and as a result, the nations had turned against them. And God allowed them to be overtaken and destroyed and taken off into exile and to slavery. So Israel was hauled off into slavery in a place called Babylon. Daniel was writing from Babylon, from the heart of the exile. And in Daniel chapter 9, it says, While Daniel was praying at the hour of evening sacrifice, the very same hour that Zechariah is praying, he was praying on behalf of all of his people, saying, How long, O Lord? How long are we going to be stuck here? The same prayer that Zechariah prays. And as he prays that, guess who appears? Gabriel. And he says, I'll tell you how long. 70 weeks of years. Essentially 490 years before this darkness ends. There's debate among scholars about exactly where that 490 years begins and ends. But regardless, it puts you squarely in the time of Jesus. So in the time of Jesus, everybody knows when the Messiah is coming. Every good Jew, this is why in the time of Jesus, there's so many false messiahs. Because everybody knew when he was coming. Everybody knew when to expect him. There's Zechariah, praying at the moment of the evening sacrifice, asking how long, and Gabriel says, now. You know it because I'm the one who gave the time frame initially. And Zechariah is floored. Now what does this have to do with the Magi? Well, think about it. In those days, in the days of Jesus, everybody knew when the Messiah was coming. Everyone was looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Christ. But the Magi weren't Jewish, right? They came from somewhere else. They presumably had no skin in this game, right? They weren't, this was a Jewish problem. This was a Jewish king. This was a king of Israel. Why would these foreigners come and pay homage 
to someone who they really had no vested stake in? Well, the key is where they came from. So let's take a step back for a second. Now, stick with me for a second. Daniel was in slavery, in exile in a place called Babylon. Does anybody know where Babylon, now we don't have a place called Babylon anymore. Does anyone know where the present day location of what was then called Babylon is? It's in Iraq. Do you know where the capital of Babylon would have been? Right around Baghdad. So that means, according to what we know modern as modern people, Daniel was praying from Baghdad that day, essentially. Present day Baghdad. So in the time of Daniel, toward the end of his writing, the Babylonian exile, the Babylonian Empire was taken over by an empire called the Persians, which is why that part of the world we still refer to as Persia and Persian people, right? They were taken over by the Persian Empire about, you know, 538, 539, mid-500s, and the destruction of Babylon was a really significant moment for the Jewish people because when Babylon went down, a new king rose to power, a guy named Cyrus the Persian. And Cyrus the Persian, within one year of his becoming king, he declared all of these Jewish people who have been hauled off into slavery, into exile, they are free to go home. And we will actually help give them the money to go back to rebuild their land. They are free. They're not captives to us anymore. It was a huge deal. So he decrees that all these Jews can go home. What was the last time in the Bible? So here's this moment that all of Israel goes into slavery. They go off into exile in a foreign land. If you're a Jew, if you think in the terms of the Old Testament, what's the last time all of Israel went into slavery in a foreign land? Egypt, the Exodus, remember? Charlton Heston, let my people go, that whole thing. The Egypt incident, the Exodus. But this one is very different because when Cyrus the Persian, this is a fascinating point of history. When Cyrus the Persian says everybody can go home, most of them don't go home. There's a lot of Jews. They go back to Jerusalem in three different waves, and they rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the city, and they begin again. But a lot of them stayed back, and we have historical records of this. That, well, by the, let's put it this way, by the 1950s, and a lot of people don't realize this, by the 1950s, over 40% of Baghdad was Jewish. It was one of the largest Jewish populations in the world, was in Baghdad, in Iraq, before the state of Israel became the nation of Israel, the, the current day state of Israel. Baghdad was the home to one of the largest Jewish populations because Cyrus the Persian was pretty benevolent and he allowed religious freedom and allowed, he allowed them to practice their faith and have a decent life, so a lot of people stayed behind. And it's in that time period, it's actually during that time period when people stayed behind to Babylon, that the synagogue tradition actually comes from. Synagogue, the Greek word synagogos, actually means to gather around. And there was a group of Jews that stayed back. They said, well, look, we don't have a temple anymore. We don't have a, a central worship location. We don't have priests. We don't have sacrifice. What do we do? Well, we have the scriptures, right? We have the Torah. So why don't we create a place where we can gather around the Torah, where we can synagogos, synagogue together around the Torah. So that no matter what happens, even if we're far, even if we rebuild this temple and we're very far from it, we will always have a place to gather around. So Jewish populations sprung up all around the world, but primarily in Baghdad. By the way, interesting side, and I just realized this, actually driving here, I remembered this. We didn't talk about this, and I don't know if it, it it's interesting to me with what you're going to talk about in a minute. The period when Cyrus the Persian allows them to go home, for about the next two or three hundred years, is one of the most significant periods of time in human history. It's what's called the Axial Age. Anyone heard that term, the Axial Age, before? 
It is the time period when you see this profound amount of human wisdom and achievement. So during this two, three hundred years, this is when you see Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and the Buddha and Confucius and the Great Wall of China is built. The Septuagint is translated. The Alexandrian Library is established. It's this Christianity begins. But it's this fascinating moment of human wisdom and human learning and fascination with knowing about who we are and what the world is. This is going on in this time, which I find fascinating. Now, we fast forward a little bit, right? For Matthew, when we're in the Gospel of Matthew and we're reading about the birth of Jesus and he says, hey, a bunch of magi showed up, or three magi. For a Jew, the term magi would instantly call to mind the book of Daniel instantly called to mind the book of Daniel, because in Babylon, according to the book of Daniel, there were a lot of people called Magi. Babylon held one of the, the corner of the market on the Magi, and Magi is a pretty broad word. Some of them are good, some bad. The word can mean enchanters or sorcerers or magicians, dream interpreters, but the word can also mean astrologers, astronomers, and scientists. It can mean a lot of different things. So when a reader of Matthew who's a Jew is hearing there's magi, where is the reader of Matthew assuming they're coming from? Present-day Baghdad. There's good evidence. And actually, what else we know, we brought gifts of, they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At the time, frankincense and myrrh were exclusively harvested from trees that only grew in that region. So there's a couple little markers that Matthew puts in there so you know what's going on. Now, why on earth does it matter to us, or to any of this, that the Magi might have come from Baghdad? So what? Who else was in Baghdad? Daniel was in Baghdad. He wrote from Baghdad. The scriptures were in Baghdad. Strong Jewish communities who had prophecies and writings and knew precisely when the Messiah was going to come lived in Baghdad. Could it be that these magi had somehow acquired some of these scriptures? Could it be that these magi had read Daniel? Could it be that these magi knew that something was supposed to happen around this time period and maybe we should start looking for signs? One other piece I want to throw into this before I turn it over to Father Peter, which I find really, really fascinating. Um, yeah, there's an Old Testament story to my knowledge, it's actually the only other Old Testament story about magi and stars. And it appears in the book of Numbers. Everybody's favorite book, right? Numbers. Numbers, Numbers gets a bad rap because it has a misleading title. It's not just numbers and genealogies. There's great stories in here. But one of my favorite stories from the book of Numbers is uh, it's the story of Balaam's ass. Do you remember that? Yeah, we're not going to talk about the ass tonight. But long story short, in the book of Numbers, there was a Moabite king. So... The Moabites were enemies of Israel. Israel has a lot of enemies in the Old Testament. But the Moabites were one of them. And there was a king named Balak. Balak. And Balak was so angry at Israel, and he wanted to politically destroy them, that he hired a sorcerer. And the text says he hired a magi. There were sorcerers for hire that you could literally pay money to, and they would go put a curse. It was like hitmen in the ancient world. They could go put a curse on whoever you wanted to. So he hires this sorcerer, this magi, literally, named Balaam, to go and pronounce a curse on the capital of Israel. Go and curse that people so that I can overtake them. As the story goes, Balaam was going out to curse Israel, and every time he opens his mouth, he can only pronounce blessings on them. He's like, you blessed people, 
And he keeps doing this. And all that comes out of his mouth are blessings. And the climax of the story is when Balaam pronounces an oracle about a great king who would someday arise out of Israel. And for that great king's birth, a star would appear and lead the people there. A magi foretells the birth of a great king in Israel and a star that would lead their people there. It's a fascinating story. Remember the themes of ironic reversals we talked about? Balak, this king, tries to use a magi to destroy Israel. Remember the story we just read in the New Testament? There's a king named Herod who wants to destroy the Christ child. What does he do? He tries to use magi to do it. Go and find him and then tell me what you found. An evil king wants to use the magi to destroy Israel or destroy the representative of Israel, right? And both of them utter blessings instead of curses. Balaam pronounces a blessing and the magi go and bless the child with their gifts and with their worship. The Magi of Matthew, in a very real way, are successors to the Balaam of Numbers, the Magi of the Old Testament. They worship the king that Balaam foretold. And how ironic it is that it's foreigners who are the first ones to go and worship the true king. It's foreigners. The Jewish king himself wants to destroy him, wants nothing to do with this, and it's foreigners. It's people from Baghdad. It's people from another time and another culture who come to the Christ child and fall down and worship. You know, there's lessons, there's so many lessons, there's so many metaphors we can pull out of this. But I'm fascinated by the fact, you know, the Catholic Church has long taught about this idea of what we call natural theology. That there are things within nature that can lead us to God. That God will never leave anyone in the dark about who he is. Now, to understand him in his fullness, we do need revelation. We need the scriptures. We need what he gave us. But all people can access him just because he's given us things in creation that lead us to him. And it's interesting to me that you have these magi from the east, they see signs in creation that lead them, but it doesn't lead them all the way. If you read closely in Matthew 2, the signs, the stars, lead the magi to Jerusalem, but they need the scriptures to get them the rest of the way. They get pretty far. They know something. They know a lot. They're putting the puzzle pieces together. Maybe they read these prophecies from Numbers. Maybe they knew the book of Daniel. They knew when all this stuff was going to happen, but they needed the help of the people of God to take them that last step of the way. And isn't it ironic that the help they got was actually from the very one who wanted to destroy Jesus? But he, whether he knew it or not, led these people to worship of their true king. So that leads us to the second big question. That's who they were, or at least who I propose they were, And now the question for Father Peter, what exactly is it that they were following up in the stars? What did they see? Oh, that's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, like, to be able to consider the, I mean, it blows my mind to make the comparison of the Magi uh, and destroying the destruction of Israel and then the, the beautiful reversal of blessing. Um, and these magi were looking. Um, I, you know, Scott, Scott says somehow they got scriptures. Somehow they got, maybe, maybe they even were disciples. Maybe that's like somehow, I mean, we know that they, they, they were longing for this star from the magi. Um, there's a lot of theories about what it could be. 
I subscribe to the conjunction theory of the Star of Bethlehem. If any of you have ever engaged and watched um, the, uh, uh, the BethlehemStar.net, if you've seen that guy, the lawyer, Dr. Larry Richard Larson, Dr. Richard Larson, if you've ever watched the Bethlehem Star DVD, this is the conjunction theory. If you haven't watched it, I'm going to take you through that today. There are other theories that would propose that maybe that the Star of Bethlehem was a supernova. Maybe it was uh, something like a comet. Uh, but there was something that, you, uh, that I think we have to put into our minds. It was something that could be observable by the naked human eye. As we learned last week, we talked about, even in the time, in the 1500s, we still didn't have the optical instruments that were needed to be able to do the detailed analysis and to be able to see out into the stars in a distant way. So we look and we say, where possibly could we find the star? We know that there was a, there was a, um, a problem in the Hanan tradition of when Herod's death was because we need the birth of Jesus before Herod dies. And so we look in the skies and we say, when possibly and what possibly could be these stellar events? And uh, I propose that the very first one that we're going to see is a conjunction on August 11th, 8, 11, um, you know, at 17. What, uh, who knows 24-hour time? What's Five. Okay. All right. <laughs> we got that. So um, what we see starting to be in the horizon and if you notice, where are we? We're looking, we're in Baghdad right now. You could see that we're facing east. If you remember, they said, we saw his, your star rising in the east. And we see um, right here a conjunction of two planets, Venus and Jupiter. Now, this is super zoomed in, this, uh, but this is what they would see from the human eye is something along this line. Jupiter, uh, they called Rex because it was the king planet, brightest planet in the sky. And when you combine that with Venus, on this date, August 11th, they would be, I mean, absolutely as bright as can be. I'm using um, a software program, program that's free on the internet called Stellarium. So if any of you are interested in looking this up and actually exploring, which I really want to encourage you to do, because uh, it, it matters that you find this. This is an exploration that we're going on. I'm making a particular proposal, of which if you disagree with me, you're entirely wrong. So, um, <laughs> oh, I mean, sorry, sorry. That, that we're free to have disagreements because we're trying to figure this out. We're looking and saying, what could possibly have led us to Christ? Because I myself have had an experience um, looking and experience in this conjunction theory of this leading me in a profound way to believing in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God become man within this world. God become flesh in the, vir in the Virgin Mary's womb. God become flesh to come and save us. And this is, so this is me wanting to share a deep part of my faith and what I've been able to discover. So the very first event that um, the conjunction theory starts to talk about is this right here. Um, now, what you're going to find, I made a, um, I made a uh, little handout. Does anybody not have this handout? Um, okay, are there extra handouts anywhere? 
Um, Sean Turgeon, did you did you hand all of the ones that you yes. had out? Okay, so if you don't have a handout, you're going to have to share with somebody. Um, but what you're going to find, and I, I, I'm going to put it up on the on the board on the uh, projector here too. So, so what you're going to find is um, the conception of John the Baptist. I would actually propose to be this August 11th. Now, if you want to use Stellarium, these are the numbers for the time. Uh, if you want to actually look this up, type them in, and to discover what dates uh, that uh, we can see. So the conjunction of Venus and Rex of Jupiter, um, I believe, if we begin to look, I, um, I, I love the conjunction theory, but if you look up the conjunction theory on the internet, what you're going to find is that everybody and their mom, including me, has a theory of what it means. They say, okay, what, are, what do these stellar events, what, what do they do? How does this possibly express the incarnation? Because we, yes, we've discovered things in the sky that were visible to the naked human eye that the Magi could have seen from Baghdad. And yet, how does this work? Where is the incarnation of Jesus Christ? A lot of them will say that this, that this conjunction of Venus and Rex is the day of the incarnation. This is the Annunciation. Some will say, this is actually the birthday of Jesus Christ, and the rest of it is all just um, shouting. I don't know. But what I would like to propose, because Scott and I have been uh, trying to figure this out, and in our conversations, in our explanation, when he's brought up to me the fact that, um, that Luke has from Daniel connected to the Magi this idea of the 490 years expressed then in the 490 days uh, that when you combine those together, what does it actually look like? And when you see these handouts, these, these timelines that I like to propose to you, what you're going to notice is that we have the first event up here and we have the last event down there, which we are going to get to, but I'm going to walk you through it first. Can I stop you for a second? Yes. Because I, I didn't mention in the, in the recap, because I know some of you weren't here. If you were here, then you, you probably know what we're talking about. If you weren't, you might be wondering, what, wait, what do you mean 490 days? So I mentioned Daniel is given this, this message from the angel Gabriel that how long? Oh, it's going to be 490 years till your exile ends. Again, that puts you in the ballpark of Jesus, and there's debate of, again, when it begins and ends. Luke... Gospel writer Luke appears to have a particular interpretation of this, and I don't know what Luke is exactly thinking, but he takes that 490 number, and he superimposes, he applies the 490 to the days of the events of the incarnation of Jesus. Starting with the first thing that Luke gives you, the first thing in the Gospel of Luke is this annunciation to Zechariah, that he's going to have a son named John the Baptist. The first moment is the conception of John the Baptist. And from that, if you follow six months in, you have the Annunciation to Mary, that she's going to have a baby. And nine months after that, Jesus is born, because it takes nine months for a baby to be born. Forty days after the birth of Jesus, Jesus is presented in the temple. This is the moment in the Jewish tradition when you take your male child and you offer him back to God, saying, Thank you, Lord, you've given us this son. Ultimately, he is yours. <coughs> if you count up, the number of days, <coughs> this sounds strange, in the Jewish conception, every month had exactly 30 days, not like the 28 and 31 that we have. 
But from the moment of the conception of John the Baptist, if you count six months to the conception of Jesus, nine months after that to the birth of Jesus, and then 40 more days to his presentation, you actually get 490 days exactly. And again, I went through a little slower last week. But Luke has, in between the lines, set out a schema of exactly 490 days from the first moment that announces the Christ's birth event to the presentation of the Christ child in the temple as 490 days. And what we're seeking to do is say, okay, in those 490 days, what is happening celestially? To point us toward what creation is doing as Jesus is being born. So that's where the 490 days that we're applying to this. So I should have mentioned that in my own little recap, but yep, that absolutely. catches us up. That catches you up. Plus, most of the time when we're talking about the conjunction theory, what, uh, what people try to lay out is, does this match, does this fit with the description of the star that we discover in the Gospel of Matthew? And um, so I'm actually presuming upon their work that sa saying that Jupiter, as the star of Bethlehem, or, or called Rex, does actually fulfill the needfulness from the Gospel of Matthew. But I think that that's usually where people stop, rather than this engagement with looking and saying, okay, well, let's look at this in relationship to Luke. So um, we have, uh, I, so I like, to, I like to propose that, the, that we begin with the first stellar event of the conception of John the Baptist. Uh, that basically he gets back from the temple and him and Elizabeth, uh, who was older, decide to, you know, he was away for a little while, and they, they get it on. So, uh, and, and they make a baby. This is good living, you know, like, it was not immaculately conceived, a little, yeah, he needs some gummy words just to keep up with this here. Um, of which, um, the next very significant event is what we call the first conjunction of Regulus and Rex. Two, oops, two, nine, thirteen. Regulus is thirteen. Um, here, I'll get into what Regulus is. Thirteen, seventeen, eleven. Okay. So, if you'll notice here, uh, this is the constellation of Leo. Um, Leo. Um, as you know, it, uh, the, the sign of the tribe of Judah is the lion. The lion, uh, it, it is, it's kind of like uh, the sign of the tr uh, tribe of Gryffindor. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, you know, if you don't, I've been, I just finished like Harry Potter, I just read all the seven books, and um, for like the fifth time. So, um, <laughs> So I've been thinking in terms of Harry Potter recently. Um, but it, it, I, I think that actually she did that on purpose, that what, where does the Savior come from but the tribe of the Lion of Judah? Uh, it, there, there are references. She is a Christian, by the way. And so what we have here is just a, a, a little bit later, just a, about a month later, we have a sign in the, so, the sky. Um, Regulus is the star that it's not a planet, Regulus is a star, and look where it sits. It sits at the heart of the lion of the constellation Leo. And it being um, 
the brightest, Regulus, is actually also another term for king. Um, and so, so Regulus is a king star. It's one of the very brightest in the sky. Now all of a sudden you have a conjunction of the first of, of the king star with the king planet, and they come together. Which me, for, for us we look at this, and it doesn't look like a conjunction. But to somebody who's from the ground level, you're looking at this and you're going, "Oh my goodness! Here is a absolutely bright star." And you're going, "Wow! Okay, that's kind of significant. This is wonderful. All right, let, I can hang out with this because you have to remember that astronomy takes a long time." You have to observe it over time. It's not something like, like um, you, you'll get like a conjunction of Venus and Jupiter. It'll be one night. And you'll be like, whoa, hold on. That gets you paying attention. You're saying, oh, wow, that was fast. And if you look at Venus, Venus will jump all over the place. It's, it's running around. You try to get two, two, um, two planets that are, going, that are circling around each other. They call them planets because it's wanders. And then when they meet, it's like, OK, hold on. For them, astrology and astronomy, there was no separation. That's part of the reason why we call them magi. They're saying, we believe that there are meaning to the things that are in the stars. So they're saying, there's meaningful relationships that are always taking place. And, and so the, they say, OK, we believe this. Now, okay. this, yes? Can I just add one piece? Of this? course, always. I just, I'm just hearing now, actually. So, and we, we share this. This isn't just the ancient world. It exists, but we carry it on today. What, what does a lion often represent for us? King of the jungle, right? Where do we get that from? We get it from the Bible. Because the king in the Old Testament, like Father Peter said, was supposed to come out of the tribe of Judah, the lion. That was the, the imagery that was used. So, And if these magi knew those references from the Bible, what you're actually seeing is the king planet conjunct, conjuncting? Conjoined. Conjoining with the king star in the middle of the symbol of the king. King, king, king. And in the ancient world, numbers really mattered. Numbers always had symbolic and qualitative value. And you could get no more qualitative than the number three. If something was three of something, there was the most that you could have. Like, Father Peter is very, very, very holy. There's no more than that in the ancient understanding. It's three. So now there's three images of kingship that are all coming together. And if you're somewhere else in the world, you're definitely going to pay attention to this. Sorry. Absolutely. You're, gonna, you're going like, Ooh, okay. So, but they say, well, does this matter? I mean, that's really, uh, you're seeing a lot of stellar events taking place over time. And, you, and as, as an astronomer, you're saying like, well, okay, that's cool. This is good. What does this mean? And they, uh, they keep paying attention because to be able to do it, they're saying, okay, well, it's the same star. So, so Jupiter, or Rex, the king, intersects with Venus. Okay, this is good. And now it's with Regulus just a very short time later. We see that it's August 11th to September 13th. And you're saying, okay, well, I propose that we have a long wait. And uh, again, we, we talk about how long was it when the, uh, that Mary was away until she figured out that Elizabeth was pregnant. And we say that there was six months, 180 days. So this is where I started to get excited. Because I say, OK, well, let's look. Well, February 18th, 180 days later, we have the second conjunction of Regulus and Rex. So 1, 2, 18, 19, 19. OK, 1, uh, whoops. 1, 2, whoops. 
one, two. Sorry, I, I'm very good at using this right now. 18, 9, 19. Yes, this is all being perceived from Babylon. So uh, what, what ends up happening is you can see over time, here's Jupiter, and, um, and you're seeing that it passed. Um, it, it, over time, this is, these are days that I'm shifting. It went past, and now all of a sudden, you're seeing Jupiter come back and it conjoins again a second time. Um, now, this is the thing, is that when does a conjunction take place? Well, we can measure it in totally precise terms. For them, we, uh, we, have, we have some fuzzy things. You know, for them being able to perceive a ch conjunction, it may be two, three days, and they say, wow, it's together there. For us, we can, we can actually plot this in a very specific, specific, very direct way. For, but for them, we have uh, approximately 180 days later. And where we end up is with Jupiter and Rec Regulus again at the very heart of the constellation Leo. And we look and we, the scriptures tell us, Luke tells us that six months later, uh, Mary has the Annunciation. So all of a sudden, we have a coordination of six months. It doesn't mean that what we're, what we're doing and what we're looking at actually makes sure that this isn't like ironclad. But what we're looking for, because um, um, uh, correlation is not causation. And I think that that's actually a really important uh, thing that we're talking about as we're going through these stellar events. Correlation doesn't necessitate causation. Uh, the stars does, don't cause anything to happen, you guys. There's, there's no time in which, I mean, maybe there's some, some gravitational thing taking place. The sun actually has gravity. So it, it, will, it will do things and it can mess with orbits of planets and um, planets have gravity and as they get close to each other, um, they, <laughs> they could wobble, they could change all sorts of things. Um, but what we're looking for and what I'm looking for is like, okay, there is, this, there is a Bethlehem star. They followed something real. Now all of a sudden we have these stellar events that are taking place in the right time. And we have a timeline given to us about what takes place around the birth of Jesus Christ. And we end up here. So this is the second conjunction of the king planet and the king star in the heart of the king of the constellations. Um, and we see, and I'd like to propose that in fact, the Annunciation to Mary would have taken place. And you can see this on your on your um, thing. What's happened is that we, we've gone through the year. On the left-hand side, you can see I've, I've generally had like, you know, August, September, October. These are generally where the Gregorian months would be placed within the left, which are the Jewish months. So the Jewish month stands at the top of the, the light stripe and the dark stripe so that you get a sense. Those are 30 days apiece. And so, so in Tishri, you're going to have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Um, which is where our first conjunction of Regulus and Rex takes place. Our second conjunction takes place in the, in the month of Adar. This, this line right here is going to bring us into 1 BC. Um, now, what we start to look at is we see that uh, afterwards uh, we have a full moon, which is right where Passover would be. Passover 
is going to be at the first full moon. It's going to be the Friday after the first full moon. So we say, okay, well, this is awesome. Well, what ends up taking place 50 days later? It's the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of the Giving of the New Law. Well, we have the birth of John the Baptist taking place exactly um, on May 10th, which really is a beautiful connection back to this first stellar event of the conjunction of Venus and Rex. So, um, and this is going to be the third conjunction of Regulus and Rex. We'll look at it again. Um, 5, 10, 9, 26. 5, 10, 9, 26. So, so what ends up, so if you can see, so you can see here comes, so Jupiter, um, it goes, okay, retrograde motion. Here, if, if, this is, if this is Regulus, what's happened is that Jupiter has had a conjunction right here. And they say, okay, wow, this is cool. It goes past. Now it goes into retrograde motion. It spins backwards. And then it touches Regulus again. It has another conjunction. And that's what we're talking about the day of the Annunciation would be. Now, all of a sudden, what we're seeing is that it goes backwards again. It goes and then it, and it goes around. So essentially, what happens is it circles and has three conjunctions. So if you're looking into the heavens and you're going, um, whoa, okay, hold on. The king planet, this wanderer, what does it do three times? It crowns Regulus. And they're saying, hold on, there's something so kingly. It's, it's three examples of the king, and it's three demonstrations of kingship. It, this is like, this, they've got to be going like, oh my goodness, what has happened? And they're, they're, they're really paying attention. And now they're getting into consultation. And they're saying, what could this king be? Who could this king happen to, to be? And so we come back, and here it comes, and then it goes. Now, what we start to see is that Jupiter starts to make its way over, and it starts to bring us towards <laughs> Jerusalem. It starts to point southerly. Now, here's where I'm not exactly sure what's taken place, because we have a second conjunction of <laughs> Venus and Jupiter, right in front of the lion, uh, the lion Leo, again. Um, and so I, I don't know what it is, but if you read the scriptures, what you'll discover is that it, right after Elizabeth gives birth, I would imagine, I don't know, ladies, would you like hang out with your cousin and then like the day she gave birth, be like, all right, see you later, peace, I'm out of here. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's necessarily human living. I would imagine, my mom always goes and flies to be with my sister after she's given birth. And my, my sister has seven kids, so this is a lot of flying. Um, <laughs> And, she, uh, and, and there's something about women getting together, moms and daughters particularly, uh, after a child is born, that there's a lot of help given. There, I don't know what the helping is, but I'd imagine, I mean, it's like cooking or something. I don't know, this is good. I, I, I'm a celibate, so uh, y'all know whatever that is. And so I, I propose that, that in fact, Mary probably would have stayed around for about a month, at least a couple of weeks. 
So perhaps, actually, that there's a conjunction of Venus and Rex, that this, this second conjunction. So now we have five demonstrations, five stellar events in a row. Um, and I can, here, I'll show you the other one just because it's, it's fun to look at this stuff. 6, 17, 10, 19. 6, 17, 10, 19. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, look at this. Look at Jupiter and Venus. You couldn't even see them, could you? They were so close together. And right now, I, I mean, this is funny. Maybe it is actually in the, the womb of Leo. <coughs> I don't know. I, I haven't figured that one out yet. But I mean, but you can look and you could say, these are interesting signs. These are interesting things that are happening. Now, all of a sudden, there's something really cool taking place. Now, nothing happens again for a long time. We go through, you know, June, July, August, September. Now, all of a sudden, we're into a new year. We've got Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur again. Sukkot takes place, and then Jesus is born. But nothing, no significant stellar events um, are in the sky. You can look around on November 5th, um, but nothing really great happens. It's like, okay. And in fact, Here's the part, is that nothing great even happens at 490 days from the first stellar event. We get to the presentation of Jesus on December 15th. But 500 days later, Jupiter, the star of Bethlehem that we're proposing, the star of Bethlehem goes into retrograde motion. It starts, and um, this, is, this is an interesting thing, and we'll talk about this in a sec. 112, 25, 19. 1, 12, 25. Actually, here, let's go backwards. 19. Okay. Let's turn this off. We're going we're gonna to go. We're going to zoom in. We're going to drop a tail. So you see Jupiter cruising along. Now all of a sudden you see it's starting to bend 23rd, 24th, 25th, 26th, 27th. And you can see it actually stops in the middle of the sky. And now this, this, this is the thing is that, yes, this, uh, it, it, um, it, uh, it would be hard to see it go into retrograde motion. You'd have to be a, quite a phenomenal astronomer. And so what I, what I think is taking place, and I'm going to propose this, Jesus is born. Um, women you know, don't usually do a whole lot with their kids for at least a couple of weeks. And in fact, the tradition is 40 days later, which is, gets us to this 490 days. I think that Mary and Joseph take Jesus up to the temple and present him. And there's all these prophecies, and it's great, and they're like, oh my goodness. But I would imagine, you know, they're still, they still have a newborn. This is only a month-old baby. And so they go back to Bethlehem. And while they're in Bethlehem, they're there and they're, they're with family. They've, they, you know, they've been in Bethlehem for a good while. And uh, 10 days later, which is interesting because uh, I Googled it the other day. I was like, how long does it take to walk from Baghdad to Jerusalem? It, Which you uh, can Google map that. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, very interesting. And it happened to be 10 days. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was like, 
interesting. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a correlation. And then we see this sign in the heavens above. But what happens is when the Magi get there, they're right there, and they go and they say, hey, we've seen a bunch of these stellar events of which other people are seeing. They're, they grasp it. They're like, oh, yeah, we saw the Venus, the Regulus, the Rex, because they're so bright, it would be really hard to miss, even if you weren't like a hardcore astronomer. So they didn't miss it. And now these guys, though, have risked themselves, put themselves on the line, walked all the way. They had camels, which means that they were rich guys. But even camel travel, it's, you know, it's kind of hard, but it'd go faster than just walking yourself. So they actually see this. And what, what did they say? Herod says, oh, yeah, the prophecy is that the baby is to be born in Bethlehem. And they were like, oh, that's awesome. And so they go and they look, they're up in the sky, and they're like, we've been seeing Jupiter this whole time. And now, all of a sudden, they, we, they know that it's in Bethlehem. Um, now, did, did it rest directly over the, the manger? No, it was pretty, it's pretty high in the sky. It's actually very high in the sky. Um, so so it, would, it would be really, it, it would be difficult. But what do we know about what's taking place? The shepherds in the region... An angel appeared to them and said, hey, there's this thing. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And actually, we do refer to angels in the scripture as stars. In Revelation, it says a third of the stars were wiped from the heavens. And it was a third of the angels. So um, it, it would be, it, it's a real hard stretch. But what I think is very interesting in these stellar events is that we have 500 days, which allows for every single event, which coordinate and that has a, at this beautiful center um, the one feast day. Because all of these feasts have taken place. And you say, wouldn't it be nice that Jesus would be born in the new year? He's the new one. That would be great. Um, and uh, this one does not actually coordinate except for in this one beautiful feast of Pentecost. Because what, what is John the Baptist? John the Baptist is a new Elijah. He goes out into the wilderness. John the Baptist is a new Moses who's actually announcing what, is he, what does he get to announce? But the Messiah himself, the one after me, is, is greater than I. I'm not even fit to carry his sandals. He's a new Elijah, a new Moses. He is the one who gets to actually be the first fruits, who in a certain sense give, is the proto-martyr. He gives his life in imitation of Jesus before he even knew that he was imitating Jesus. This is, this is wild. And so I, I can really see, and I, and I think and I propose, something new here is taking place when you look and you coordinate these realities. Because it makes sense of, I, I, I really, I don't like the fact that we um, just disregard, and a lot, of these, a lot of these theories disregard history, We've been celebrating Christmas as December 25th for a long time. Uh, really, what was it, 200s? They've had the evidence even records, earlier. The earliest records are early 200s. And I'll tell Probably you, yeah, the, these days, days matter. Days matter to the Jewish people and days matter to us. And so I can see in a certain sense that we would imitate the epiphany and go to the Christ child. Um, and to be able to celebrate and to be along with these magi in this particular way. So I think this is very, I think it's very exciting uh, and that, that John the Baptist's central role uh, about announcing Christ is very much like these stars. 
But notice how it doesn't coordinate with the feast. Why? Because there is a new dispensation that, that, that John the Baptist is the greatest born of the Old Testament and wasn't the law, the height. And so he becomes this ironic reversal of the, the, of the height of Israel being inverted into a new personalism. Uh, and so these are, the, these are the Hanites that I gave you. And, um, uh, and these are what, what we're talking about. I think it's very exciting. So thank you for listening. Absolutely. Yes, Scott, Scott's, Scott's got ideas. I, I can feel it. No, it's no, good. He needs it. And it's, this is kind of fun because we're still working this out together. We're, we want, this, is a, this is a public act of theology, which is actually how we've been talking about this. We're publicly doing theology together, which is really cool. We're proposing some things. And we're saying, wouldn't it be interesting if you got to overlay all this together? <clears throat> this is what God is up to. We were looking at this the other day, though, and I, just, I've been, I was struck by this. But we were looking at this the other day. Can you zoom back in, actually, the way you have? And one of the frustrations that we had was that, you know, we were looking at all these different factors, all these different takes and things, and Father Peter kept saying, man, I'm just frustrated because none of the Jewish feasts are really matching up. And it's great, you know, we have the celestial events, and they kind of match up to these, you know, these events in Luke, which is, that's exactly what we want to see. But why aren't the Jewish feasts coming in? And um, the only one that actually matches is Pentecost. And then my wife rock, walked into my office. She had our kids, and she was just like, she was like, what are you doing? And she was looking at it, and we were like, yeah, we're just frustrated because none of these Jewish events match up. And Father Peter was saying, this is what we're doing. And just off the top of her head, she's like, but isn't Pentecost the only Jewish feast that we still celebrate on the same day? It's the only New Testament feast that we still have. I was like, oh, all the rest. I mean, the Passover. We believe as Catholics, we celebrate Passover every time we do the Mass. All the feasts are made, but they've changed their shape. Passover is the Eucharist. The Day of Atonement is now confession. Yom Kippur is the new year that we celebrate at Advent. All of them kind of become incorporated in the Christian faith, but Pentecost is the one and only feast that remains on the same day. And isn't it interesting? And if you look on your little timeline, it's fascinating that the birth, it's not exact, but the birth of John the Baptist is almost the midpoint of this timeline which is fascinating because it is John the Baptist who is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the centerpiece that brings it all together. So it's fascinating that Pentecost is the one Jewish feast that actually matches up. It's like Father Peter said, it's the first fruits celebration. And I find that the other thing that we have to just kind of reconcile that, again, we're proposing things, we have some ideas, but suggesting, it's pretty audacious to suggest that the visit of the Magi is actually what happens on Christmas Day, on, on, or what we think of Christmas Day on December 25th, which doesn't even hit the 490. It's actually 500. Why did they start walking? And, and what it does, though, for me, is allow a little bit of reflection on the nature of what grace is. Because we can't separate all of these things from grace, and, and none of us are trying to. Yes, there's celestial things. Yes, there are things that the creation is doing to signal to the world that something's happening. But I just wonder, and again, if you were with us last week, we talked about this, this moment of the presentation of Jesus in the temple. This is this moment when you have two prophets, Anna and Simeon, who are there. They've been waiting most of their lives to see this moment. And they both declare, now we've seen it. Now you can let your faithful and go in peace because my eyes have seen the salvation. This is it. The moment has arrived. And I have to believe that there's such a profound outpouring of supernatural grace onto the world at that moment just makes me wonder if there's people who are trying to discern what God is doing into the world, who are trying to figure out 
how this world works, and there's this outpouring of supernatural grace, right at this moment, what if that is what it takes to get those guys to say, you know what, let's pack up the camels, let's start moving. Let's go see it. And guess what, it takes 10 days. And they show up as Jupiter is in retrograde motion, right over Jerusalem, right over Bethlehem. It's a proposal, it's fascinating, but it leads me to ask myself, why wouldn't God work that way? Why couldn't this be the way? If God is a God of perfection, we're struggling with the math. We're trying to make this all match up. God knows exactly what he's doing, and he's got this mystery for us to kind of plumb, but it doesn't separate itself from the supernatural grace that he's using to get us there. Something's got, to put it in a metaphor of all of our Christian lives, something has got to act to get us on our camels, to get us moving toward finding this Christ child. There's a movement in all of our hearts to this. What is it that's going to get you on your camel? Well, for them, I think it was the presentation. And they said, now, let's go, which is fascinating. And it was enough to activate a king to entirely upturn his kingdom, to actually seek out these children and then slaughter them because he did not want any competition with the king. It, it, it got enough action and traction going on because I'm sure they started to hear about Simeon and Anna and that there were these magi and that, that I bet you everybody was a buzz and then all of these mothers are going like, oh no, and they, and they got warned in dreams and they had to both bail out. Neither of them came back the same way that they, they came. Um, you know, but, but we also needed to have them there. And so um, th I think that these signs um, were enough that they activate us. And so for us, people of faith, it activates me, and I think it's just very, very cool. Thank you for sharing these days with us and to actually look. And so thank you. Thank you.